Is change something that happens to you, or does it happen for you? Welcome to Disrupt Yourself Live with Whitney Johnson. Our program will have you looking at change from an entirely new perspective, a framework in which you and your team can not only face an ongoing and rapidly changing environment, but look forward to it and maximize it for business success. Now here is your host, Whitney Johnson. Hi everyone, my name is Whitney Johnson. Welcome to Disrupt Yourself Live. We all know change is necessary, desirable, inevitable, but when change happens fast, which it usually does, it can feel like it's happening to you, not for you, which can feel kind of scary. What I've learned, having been an equity analyst on Wall Street and then co-founding an investment firm with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School, is that the theory of disruption that we apply to products could also be applied to people, which, by the way, this theory states that your odds of success are six times higher and your revenue opportunity 20 times greater. I've since spent the last five years codifying and researching this seven-point framework of personal disruption so that whether you're scaling a business, building a team, or just trying to manage your own career, you've got a structure to do this. What we explore on this show is how do you know when it's time to disrupt yourself? And when you do, how do you disrupt yourself successfully? In today's episode, we will be looking at what personal disruption looks like with San Yun Sheng, the founding executive director of Duke's Fuqua Coach K Center on Leadership and Ethics. She's also an advisor at Google Ventures and a member of Marshall Goldsmith's 100 Coaches. Sanyan, welcome. Oh, Whitney, it's such an honor to be here, and I'm a huge fan of your work. Disrupt yourself, and I can't wait for your next book. Oh, thank you so much, Sanyan. So I want to I want to obviously talk about the work that you're doing, but I, I want to start a little bit with your disruption in your own life. I think that the theme of this show is personal disruption. I think it's really fascinating for all of our listeners to be able to build, um, to go to what you're doing professionally, but to start with the, what the personal looks like. So you've experienced a lot of disruption in your life. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and just a little bit about your own story. Well, on the personal disruption, um, I think the three things that you can know about me is, one, I'm an immigrant. I mean, that's the first thing, right, Um, that matters in terms of the context of this discussion. When you, I emigrated, I was born in Taiwan, and I emigrated to the U.S. when I was seven. And with uh, immigration, that's, I mean, talk about disruption (laughs) and a major change. Absolutely. It's letting go, yeah, it's like letting go of things that you're familiar with, and trying to find anchors for the familiar in a new place, and then adapting to the changes all around you, changes in language, changes in culture. Even, I just remember running through the grocery stores trying to find my favorite fruits, and they didn't exist in the U.S. back then. (laughs) What was your favorite fruit when you were seven years old? hmm? What was your favorite fruit or food? Oh, mangoes. And this was back mangoes. in the ni- early 1980s, so, you know, mangoes and tropical fruits. And right now, even today, I love lychees, but you can't find them. Uh-huh. <laughs> you can't uh-huh. find them anywhere. <laughs> yeah, fascinating. You know, so it's interesting. So you came to the United States when you were seven. And you know, just a fascinating point or tidbit, Sanyan, is um, a few months ago, people asked me, you know, like, what kind of guests do you like to have? And I it's like, well, I don't know. I just like people that like to disrupt themselves. And I started <laughs> looking back at my list of guests, and there was this preponderance of first and second generation immigrants oh, on my guest list. And now okay. here I have you. 
And I realized the reason is, is like you just said, when you are willing to move from one country to the next, that is the ultimate disruption. And so you're actually, you know how to do it. It's in your DNA now. And so you get good at it and you can just keep doing it over and over again. So fascinating. Okay. So you moved to the United States. You're seven years old. What state did you move to? New Jersey. I mean, Jersey. (laughs) New Jersey. Okay. So that's your first major disruption. Did you speak any English or did you have, and you only spoke Chinese and you had to learn learn English? Yeah, I only spoke Chinese and Taiwanese at that time. And so I had to learn from scratch English. And that's why, you know, if I, on this show, I happen to mess up some idioms, now there's a reason why. <laughs> well, but, you know, Whitney, it's really interesting when you talk about the pattern of your guests being first-generation uh, immigrants. So there's this idea, I think, you know, when you're a first-generation anything, it can be an immigrant or even a first-generation college graduate or um, first-generation, um, I don't know, a pioneer. You're also a bridger because mm. the world you left behind You can never go back to that community. You're never fully a member of that community. And you're never really fully a member of this new community. So you're always in this in-between world. And part Mm -hmm. of being in an in-between world is psychological survival, is getting to know all the different parties, right, across all those different worlds and being able to find the similarities and bridge the differences. And that's something I see over and over again in first-gen people. Interesting. So you've really been able to take that experience and generalize it out or universalize it. Okay, so so let's go to your second childhood. You said there were three as a child and a teenager. What's your second one? Oh, I was going to say three different parts of my identity. So immigrant. Oh, okay. Good. Second thing is really being a mom. I mean, um, adding kids ah. to one's family is a big disruption. When you think about yeah. it, you think about the habits, you think about our identity shifts, and actually finding new routines, right? Chucking old habits and old structures and embracing new ones to make this new new um, addition to your family or additions to your family because each addition is different, um, be able to help this entire family unit um, as a collective thrive, right? So that, in a, in a way, when yeah. you think familiarly, that's a form of disruption. Absolutely. So how old are your children? Oh, they're eight, seven, and five. <laughs> so I'm tired all the time. <laughs> um, do you remember? Do you remember when? Do you remember how? Like one of the first experiences that you had after you'd had your first child, and you went, "Whoa!" Like, oh, we're never going back to what it was like before. Do you remember having one of those experiences? You know what? I let me reflect back on that. You know, it's all a blur because I had them all so fast. <laughs> but I can tell you about one experience in particular because I think parenting is a form of leadership, right? And we think about leadership as being in our work lives. However, leadership also uh, applies in our relationships, in all different types of relationships, including our familial lives. And I think about being a mom of three kids, how different. The big surprise was how different all three of those kids are. And mm-hmm. And you have to parent them differently. And similar to in our leadership work, we have to really get to know our people whom we're leading, the members of our team, because we actually have, they are driven by different motivations. And we have to understand what each of those different motivations are and be able to um, leverage those and help them flourish in different ways. And so I think, you know, in terms of parenting, if there's one disruption that connects and integrates with my work, it's that 
it's that it's actually helped me become a better leader because I see mm. so many applications, you know, crisscross over into that world. Yeah, interesting. I remember um, th- just thinking about actually, I, I can't believe I'm about to tell you this story, but I remember being, um, you know, being a new mother and just having this experience of being up in the middle of the night, right, taking mm. feeding my child. And, um, just, and I've always really relied on my sleep. Like sleep is important to me. Sleep (laughs) is is. (laughs) precious. And this whole idea of like sleep deprivation, like I don't like to do sleep deprivation. And I just remember thinking like, I don't know how to do this, like to be up in the middle of the night with a child. And that just that one thing I thought was a really, that's a a really huge and potent disruption, isn't it? And I, and during that time, actually, interestingly enough, this is funny during that time period, I must have read, I don't know, 15, 20 different Orson Scott card books, which by the oh, way, I'm, I'm a huge on. Orson Scott card yeah. fan too. Oh, that's okay. so wonderful okay, to know. So he, he's going to be a guest on this show <gasps> what? In, in, yeah, in a week. Oh right. my goodness. He's going to so, be a guest. Because all he's the next books guest. have these like genius the prodigy fact. children and yes. they're thrown into these disruptive situations and they have to learn to adapt from Ender's Game to Seventh Son. Oh my gosh. Okay, we have to talk. Well, at some other point, we have yeah, to talk no, more about our science fiction. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So you're you're right. Absolutely, he has thrown his the children into these disruptive situations. So anyway, so while while I was in that period of total and complete sleep deprivation, I relied a lot on Orson Scott Card to get me mm. through those those nights. So okay. So we talked about motherhood. Um, so <laughs> moving here as an immigrant, second piece of your identity, motherhood. Third, what's the third one? So third is something, it's less of an identity, but just it's something that I do. I'm a collector of uh, children's books, especially children's picture books. And I'll explain why this is relevant in the context of like the leadership work and the disruption. So children's books, to simplify something is incredibly from the complex, all these, you know, complex universal human truths into the simple, accessible um, writing or even pictures, picture books. Um, it's not simple. It's incredibly hard. You know, simplification is incredibly hard. And so when you think about in the leadership world, um, how we're communicating, what's, you know, filtering through the massive amounts of data and the new fog of war is that is having too much data rather than not enough data. How do you, you know, filter through all that and how do you distill that down for your people into here's the, here's what you need to focus on. Here's what you need to prioritize. I learn a lot from children's books, right? And so I'll share a recent book that I read, um, that I've read uh, to my son. It's called They All Saw a Cat. So in this Hmm. picture book, a cat walks through the world and the, a boy sees a cat and you see, you know, the, the cat from the boy's vantage point, a fish sees a cat. And of course, it's like glass bowl. <laughs> um, a dog sees yeah. a cat versus a mouse sees a cat. And then finally, the, the cat sees a cat and the bird sees a cat. And what that, in its, I mean, there were maybe a total of less than 100 words in that entire picture book. But it, it showcased a really powerful message, which is how, a lot of times, you know, the cat is the same going through, but how we perceive something is so informed by our experiences, our personal wow. experiences. And mm-hmm. so in that, from that vantage point, we need to be aware of how others are perceiving, right? Our, our yeah. intentions, our actions, no matter to us, we're like, oh, when we do this, of course it's demonstrating that I care. But 
others may not perceive it that way because they may have a completely different set of experiences. And that's why that communications and dialogue is so important. So that shows the diversity of perspectives. And also that book, in a simple way, shows the diversity of perspectives. And also this idea of why we need to communicate with one another to see that big picture. And there's this uh, William Butler Yeats quote that goes, uh, talent perceives differences, but genius mm. unity. And so it goes back to the Bridger idea again, right? Like we see differences, but we also need to find the touchstones, the common elements throughout all the different, you know, diversity. Say so that quote one more time. Say so that quote one more time. Mm. So it's um, the quote, the, the Butter, William Butler Yeats quote. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's talent perceives differences, but genius unity. And in this, in today's world, you know, diversity and inclusion is such a huge, it's a huge topic on everybody's minds. And I think this idea of we have to recognize the individual differences and value and embrace the individual diverse viewpoints that comes from the diverse set of experiences. However, at the end of the day, we also have to recognize that there's very universal common human feelings right? The core, the core aspects of our humanity. And it's weaving. So it's one thing to see the diversity to leverage that. But on top of that, we also have to weave through all that and find the commonalities. Right. To see the unity and the diversity, which is really a powerful, like you just said, there's genius in that. So mm-hmm. what are... Um, what are your, for our listeners who are really thinking, wow, I never thought of this before. There's so much <laughs> I can learn from a children's books. What are two or three books that you find yourself recommending to people over and over and over again? Oh, my gosh. Um, well, I just wrote a book called The Launch Book, <laughs> and it's about how do you address change. And launch is really a word for we're always facing external change, even more so than before, right? And so... That book stemmed out of interviews, conversations from students all the way to executives, and they realized there's a common question everyone is asking, which is, how do I launch? How do I, how do I address change? And so that's how the launch book came about. Um, I love your book, Disrupt Yourself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so, we'll, we'll, okay. I, so Sonia, and I want to talk more about your book after the break. What I'd love... Um, before we go to this break, is one or two children's books. Oh, that's what you're asking. Okay. Yeah, and then I want to come to your book after the break. So one or two children's books that you would recommend. Okay, anything by Mo Williams. (laughs) Because there's such humor. Like his uh, Piggy and Fitzgerald, uh, the the Piggy and Elephant books um, is terrific. And anything by Chris Van Alsberg, it's wonderful. The uh, illustrations make you look at the world differently. Huh. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. So, so everyone, thanks for tuning in. We will be right back after our commercial spot. We'll talk more with Sonia Shang, the executive director of Duke's Coach K Center on Leadership and Ethics. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
Do you want more of personal disruption? Whitney Johnson's book, Disrupt Yourself, which the Boston Globe described as the what color of your parachute career guide of today, is available wherever books are sold. If you are wondering how to apply these ideas to build a team that can manage through change, her new book, Build an A-Team, published by Harvard Business Press, is now available for pre-order. In the meantime, you can hear more in-depth interviews with disruptors at WhitneyJohnson.com. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Disrupt Yourself Live. To reach Whitney Johnson with a question or comment about the show, please send your email to wj at whitneyjohnson.com. Now back to Disrupt Yourself Live. Welcome back, everyone. Today's guest is Sonyun Shang, founding executive director of Duke's Coach Case Center on Leadership and Ethics. Sonyun, right before the break, we were talking about three different pieces of your identity and how those have allowed you and helped you become a disruptor extraordinaire. You were also telling us about some of your favorite children's books and how you're a collector of those books. And one book that you mentioned was Mo Williams. And we also shared our love for Orson Scott Card, who's going to be a guest on the show in about a week. So what I'd like to do as we go into this next segment is talk to you a little bit about what you studied in college, how you decided that was interesting to you, and then um, move us into how you ended up in the role you are today. Because I think there was some disruption that took place there as well. So (laughs) talk about college. Okay, so college, uh, I graduated as a biomedical engineer, and the reason I chose biomedical engineering, this was in the mid-90s, was I loved the sciences, and BME, biomedical engineering, wove together. It's interdisciplinary in nature. So it wove together physics and biology and chemistry, which is deeply fascinating to me. I always think that, do you find like the most interesting things, um, the most innovative things happen in the interstitial spaces, like at the intersection of two disciplines or two ideas and that's why biomedical engineering <laughs> and so and, that's and because uh, I mean, you're like a you, bridger <laughs> well and look i mean you're you you were a music major like you right. you are a brilliant musician right. and you know with finance and investment bank i mean it's just amazing i find you fascinating whitney um so on biomedical engineering and the thing is i also i came into college i think as most a lot of high schoolers did, high-achieving high schoolers did, with a very linear mindset, thinking, mm-hmm. well, if I do A, then it's B, and the world, you plan and plan and plan. 
and you go from A to B to C to D. And one disruption that happened was, and I think it had to do with me having a fixed mindset. I'm also a huge fan mm. of Carol Dweck's work. Mm. I had this fixed mindset, and the mindset that I have, my identity then, was being smart. And so then I encountered coursework that kind of made me question whether I was smart or not, because smart was defined by grades. And if I had more of a growth mindset, I would just trudged right along and learned. But instead, I retracted and kept retracting, retracting. And then at one point, um, uh, did not do well at all. Like got a D in one of the uh, engineering courses. And that had a whole set of cascading ramifications, which led me to really, it, it was a complete and utter failure. And it destroyed mm. my confidence. And it also destroyed, you know, pulverized this identity of being smart because suddenly, oh my gosh, I'm not smart anymore. So what am I? Wow. And that was also that must have been so hard. Yeah. How old were you when this happened? Nineteen, twenty? That was around when I was twenty. I was also a year younger than everyone else mm-hmm. in college. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot growing up to do. But that was also one of the best things that ever happened to me. Because mm-hmm. one it led me to rethink what is my identity and rethink about, you know, valuing people on and myself on values rather than grades or something that's fixed, right? And then two, it also started opening me on this path to a new mission life. So you can't control whether greatness is your outcome, but you sure can control investing in other people's greatness and enabling greatness. And that's actually a mission. My own personal mission is uh, to enable greatness in others. And then the third thing is that um, I went from being a planner to being a prepper. (laughs) That's what I mean Mm. by that. So I I was that kid when I came in to freshman year in high school. I had all four years of my high school mapped out. I could know at any one point what my grade point average was based on each test. I mean, it was just, it was really mapped. And when I think about prepping versus planning, I think planning is when you know there's something you're going after and you go after it. And success, like, for example, uh, you're planning for, for a big game in sports. Mm-hmm. And so you do everything that you can to win, you know, at that game. So that's planning. It's more linear. Prepping mm-hmm. is, you know, you sort of have an end, general end goal in mind, but it's not clear yet what the vision is. And so what you're doing is you're prepping, you're prepping for readiness to take opportunities and to see opportunities. You're really planning for luck, like prepping for luck. Mm-hmm. And, and so when I stopped planning, I started seeing. Right, I started seeing and being more open to just jumping into opportunities. So you're saying you're saying getting that um, D in that engineering class, like in the in the self reflection that ensued, you started shifting and not because of the identity. Basically, you had an identity crisis, right? Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think we all need an identity crisis, hopefully younger do. than later we when do. the stakes are higher. Um, and I think that's one of the roles that college and high school does is is um, is making us rethink step back and rethink who are we and what's our role and what's our responsibility to the world around us right so and so yes yeah, so so question for you then what happened um, 
Okay, because there's a bunch of different threads going here. So <laughs> just to kind of keep the keep the narrative, and then I want to hear this idea of investing in people because I have a feeling it has to do with what you're doing with your work today. So did you change your major from biomedical engineering, or what did you do then? No, I, I kept biomedical engineering, and I graduated as a biomedical engineer. I was also pre-med, and I know mm-hmm. I had the um, MCAT scores. I, I test well on standardized tests. I know with that D, uh, medical school was going to be a, a stretch, so I didn't even apply. And at that point, I was really trying to figure out what, you know, what's next because suddenly I, I didn't have a clarity. You know, I right. had planned out right. my life. Your plan, now it's like, your plan what? had gone. Your plan was was defunct. Exactly. And so, mm-hmm. so I'll give you two examples um, of what of you know um, this being open to possibilities. So the year after graduation, I started, I thought, well, maybe I'll get a, I'll work towards getting a PhD, you know, because I didn't know what the possibilities were. And I'll get, and I'll, I started working in a xenotransplantation lab. And during that one year, I had the opportunity to go to Honduras on a medical missions trip. And we were there for one week, and I went with a group of um, medical doctors. And I was the um, my role was a pharmacist. Basically, I put all the different um, drugs and medicines um, into packets. And we were in the mountainous regions of Honduras. And I realized at that time these questions. I mean, we stepped on the floor of a church um, the entire week, and we were reliant on those around us, the villagers, for our um, safekeeping. And that was interesting because back in the 90s, there was this emerging field of biomedical ethics, and we were looking at, you know, the physician-patient um, power dynamic. And here, we were we were perhaps more reliant on them <laughs> on our mm. for our well-keeping, and they really didn't need us because they were they were dealing with chronic illnesses and we're just parachuting in for that one week and how much good, and I started asking questions to myself, like how much good are we actually doing here? Was this more for us, for them? And, and thinking about the bigger set of responsibilities. And then uh, that led me to the next year when I got back, uh, led me to Washington, D.C., where for the next five years, I uh, entered into the world of biomedical ethics. And I was at the American Association for the Advancement of Science, uh, the world's largest federation of science and engineering societies. And my role, again, this is a bridger role, was looking at mm-hmm. are the ethical and legal implications and social implications of scientific advances and technology before they became realities. Right, And that required, to see that big picture, it required bringing together religious leaders, policymakers, media, scientists, lawyers, people who probably have never been in the same room before to really talk out, have engage in a dialogue around what are the implications of, um, say, uh, you know, the behavioral genomics, you know, what are the implications of cloning, yeah. that sort of thing. So if you and, hadn't gotten that D in that class your life would have gone a completely different direction is what you're telling me. I would have not questioned as much the path I was on, right? Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have, it would have been so much harder in your words to disrupt myself. Right. Because you got, it disrupted for you, but then you ended up in a field, right? This biomedical ethics doing this bridging work, which is Mm -hmm. one of your superpowers, (laughs) <laughs> it, so um, fascinating. It, it, it was a gradual realization of something I'm passionate about, this idea of it being a bridger. Yeah. And then yeah. um, the natural path, 
would be to go towards uh, getting a law degree. You know, um, mm-hmm. the I was working with the American Bar Association Science and Technology Law Section, had a lot of wonderful um, lawyer mentors. And so I actually applied to Georgetown, got into Georgetown, and was going to enter into law school. And one day on the bus in in D.C., I was sitting next to um, a stranger, a financial analyst. I think that's what his background was. And he just asked, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I want to make things happen. And then he said, okay, this is, quote him, not necessarily my opinion. He said, then don't go to law school because <laughs> lawyers will figure out the, the – figure out all the reasons why you shouldn't do something because they're looking at risk. If you want to make things happen, go to business school. I thought, now remember, I'm no longer in the planning mood. I'm more open to possibilities. I said, all right. Um, The love of my life, who is now my husband, was down at Duke. And Duke at that time had this new MBA program called the Cross-Continent MBA program where we had 100 students from 27 different countries and it was a place in space model where in a short period of time um, of one week residencies, we have to be able to build up that trust face-to-face enough to sustain us through as a team through the following six weeks, six to seven weeks virtually. So that, you know, and I was vastly interested in the international nature of the program. And also from where I sat at Triple S, I could see that this is, this was back in the late, in 2000. The world was moving towards this idea of how do you quickly build virtual trust? Yeah. Right. And so, so yeah, that, that's how I came to be applied to one place. That was my alma mater, um, to be close to Chad and this program and, Ended up being in business school. <laughs> so your husband, so, by the way, your husband, by the way, is a medical doctor, right? Yes, he's a physician. He's, he's a, a physician. And by the way, can I just say? So, so you married had, the medical doctor. You just questioned his Well, here's what I realized. Thank goodness I didn't, you know, I got that D and didn't go into medicine because um, I'm, a little, I'm a little bit of germaphobe. I I get a little faint at the sight of blood and I need my sleep. Like you, I need my sleep. Being a doctor would not have been the best (laughs) career choice for those. Right. Okay, so we've got about three minutes until we go to break. Um, Mm. What I'd love to do is have you tell us how you ended up being the founding executive director of Duke's Coach K Center on Leadership and Ethics. Give us that in about two minutes, if you can okay. do that. Uh, so can. after I graduated from my business school uh, MBA, I had I was talking with the deputy dean of that time, who was a strategy professor of mine, and they needed a managing director for the customer relationship management center that they had. It's CRM center uh, with Teradata. And so I stepped into that role, and a year later, they were starting to create the Coach K Center on Leadership and Ethics. And and I thought I saw the I heard about it, I saw the ethics part, and I thought, oh, this is a way to connect what I knew before. So I said I'd like to put my name in the hat, and he said, great, you'll be right now. You'll be the only name in the hat. And so I was in the right place at the right time. And the interesting thing is I wasn't a sports person and I wasn't a leadership person. But isn't it wonderful Mm -hmm. that we are not yet whom we shall become? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it attracted you because of the ethics. That's so fascinating. So the 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 one part that no one would have even noticed or thought of was what really brought you in. 
Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. So, and this was what year? 2002? This was about 2003 at that point when we were just thinking about forming the center. Okay. And the mission of the center is what? It is um, helping current students and be, well, at the business school, it's to develop the type of leaders that business and society, the type of business leaders that society needs. And that's students. And then through our forums that engage um, chief executives, it's also helping them to rethink leadership for what's next. Okay. All right. So we have been listening to Sanyan Shang, the executive, founding executive director at Duke's Coach K Center for Leadership and Ethics. We will be back with her after the break. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Do you want more of personal disruption? Whitney Johnson's book, Disrupt Yourself, which the Boston Globe described as the what color of your parachute career guide of today, is available wherever books are sold. If you are wondering how to apply these ideas to build a team that can manage through change, her new book, Build an A-Team, published by Harvard Business Press, is now available for pre-order. In the meantime, you can hear more in-depth interviews with disruptors at WhitneyJohnson.com. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Disrupt Yourself Live. To reach Whitney Johnson with a question or comment about the show, please send your email to wj at whitneyjohnson.com. Now back to Disrupt Yourself Live. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest today, Sanyan Shang, founding executive director at Duke's Coach Case Center for Leadership and Ethics. So, Sanyan, we've got about 10 minutes left in the program. Could you tell us one of your most exciting moments when you look at oh, the past five years of running this center? Give us an exciting moment of some really big win at this Center for Leadership and Ethics. Mm. Well, there's there's so many. And... Um, let's see. You know what? I can talk about our co-leadership fellows. So in 2000, and, we formed the center in 2004. And in 2000, right afterwards, we realized that, you know, a big part, if, if we're going to develop the type of leaders that business, the type of business leaders that society needs, then we have to actually dive in and influence the culture. Of, of the entire school. And Fuqua 
um, at that and still is known as a team team culture, like Team Fuqua, you know, um, team culture. But leadership at that time, because there was a perception among the students of leadership as command and control, this was like back in the early 2000s of command and control, there wasn't that integration with leadership and, and team, right? When you and I realized at the end of the day, leadership and team go hand in hand. It's interdependencies, you know, um, on the team. And yeah. at that time, so to shift that culture, one of the things we realized was it has to be peer influence. So we pulled together this group of second-year MBA students who then we train up to serve as coaches and mentors and team facilitators for all 400 first-year MBA students. Now, all of our MBA students, when they come in through the door, they go through a 360, right? And so these Cole Leadership Fellows, our center, the nickname is Cole, um, Cole Leadership Fellows then serve as the coaches for all 400 MBA MBA students. And just seeing how each year um, the growth of the fellows and the culture um, has been so incredibly joyful. And there was like so many moments along the way that we were like, oh, this is, this is just as when we think it couldn't, they couldn't be any better, the next class you know, came in and, and, wow. and moved it forward because each class also choose their successors. And so there's this deep idea of, you know, part of their legacy is to choose the right people who will continue on the work of the co-leadership fellows. So and every, every incoming class, all of the MBA students do a 360. Mm-hmm. And it's based wow. on our six domains of leadership model, which was developed by two of our uh, wonderful faculty members, one of whom is a faculty director with the center, Sam Sicken, and the other one is uh, Alan Lind. And so, so seeing the fellows, just each class of students, and the, I mean, it's a true fellowship, and how they, how even though each class is different, they all have this deep sense of responsibility to make the world around them better, to make the community around them better. I mean, they're, they're investing so much of their time outside of classwork in making this work because of their sense of belief in it. That How many, is hugely Yeah, that's inspiring. amazing. How many fellows do you have each year? About 45. 45. About 45. Out of a class of how many? Uh, 400. Oh, okay, so 10%. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you mentioned the idea of teamwork. I'm kind of going to go rapid fire here now. So the idea of teamwork, what's one of the best moments or displays of teamwork that you you've observed in your work oh in my work I see it every day you know and so let's go back to what team is team isn't just you know five let's say a team of five each working you know leveraging their strengths and then parsing out a project into five different parts and then bring it together that's not really I mean it's a it's a level of teamwork but it's not as good as it can be Right, and here's what I mean by that. Um, connecting it to the, what we're seeing in the world today, it's no longer a linear world. Um, something I learned from General Marty Dempsey, who's a, a 18th chair, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who's actually a senior fellow with our center. A few years ago, he said, "All right, the type of problems that we are seeing today is complex versus complicated." complicated problems that we saw 20 years ago are problems that you break down into 1,000 different parts, solve each part individually, bring all the solutions together and problem solved. Complex problems are interdependent. The parts are interdependent. So Mm -hmm. you can solve one part, but it can actually make the whole problem worse. 
right? Because there's a cascading ecosystem effect. So, and then let's apply that to team. You can take a project and each of the five members, you know, they don't talk to each other, but they just, you know, there's a finance person, there's a marketing person, um, there's someone who's maybe great at writing together reports and they work on disparate parts, bring it together. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, you, you get a, you get a product. But if those people are learning from each other and understanding really the roles that they play in the larger picture and how they can, they, you know, how the cascading effects um, that yeah. their particular expertise have on the other expertise, boy, you're going to get something incredible as a product so better than, say, than what so you can I know imagine I, before. I'm kind of, this is a totally unfair question, but what has been a moment where you've seen Coach K do this with teams and coaches? <laughs> All the time, you know, all the time. Okay, so here's one key thing I've learned um, from Coach K. I've learned so many things from him over the years, uh, but one thing that's that I've been thinking about a lot recently as it relates to my work on culture is this idea of feeling. So he said at one point, it's not enough for people to know something. They have to also feel it. Right? And so I see him spending so much of his time where his leadership is not only on the court, but it's also off the court, looking at how do you build chemistry into this, te- into like all the team members so that, and it's that chemistry that fosters that glue, that interdis- uh, interdependency. And I see it happening all the time, you know, and it, what we see on is the court. Is there one specific way that you've seen it? Can you think of one specific example where you're like, oh, that's what he's doing right now? Mm-hmm. So, um, let's see, a few years ago, he was trying to foster chemistry among the team members and trying to get a way for them to talk to each other. And by the way, years ago, he might have four years to really develop a team and mm-hmm. a player. Now, we're lucky we have two, right? And that's actually the changing environment that we all have to adapt to. Right. And he's actually an incredibly adaptive person. Like he, you know, he, in his leadership, he has them team members adapt to him, but he's also adapting to them and their particular styles and their learning styles. So a few years ago, he realized there needed to be a natural way for them to uh, serendipitously collide with one another, engage with one another. It can't be too forced. Right? It has to be very natural and authentic. And so there was this... Um, there was this room where a lot of the players were going through, have to go through in order to get from, you know, uh, one place to, to like where the team, team was meeting. So he had the idea to turn that room into like put tables in there, you know, snacks in there. So that became a snack room. And that became a natural place for people to interact um, and have those conversations outside of their everyday functions and structures. So that's another way. each other. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. fantastic. Okay, so let's jumping jump to you've written a book, and I'm I hope I'm getting the title right. It's the launch <laughs> book, right? It's called it is the launch, launch book. book. Okay, tell us a bit about that book, and what's one of the big lessons you learned, um, or one lesson you love for people to learn in reading the book, and then what's a lesson that you learned yourself about launching in the process of writing the book. Okay, so can I just say that the irony of launching the launch book is I was experiencing everything that readers 
in their launches we're experiencing. Um, yeah, it is. I was like, so I became my own, I became the reader. I became the consumer of these ideas. Uh, and so one of the, you know, when I think about the three reasons I wrote the launch book, one is it's, um, it's for me. I'm going to be a scaredy cat next time I, I launch something. I'm going to be, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that. And so I need to look back on this book to remind myself of, okay, here's the framework that you can go through, not to, to overcome, to embrace that fear and then move forward. Right. And two, it's um, it's there were so many wonderful mentors and friends um, along the way who have shared their insights and ideas with me over you know the last ten years. And this is a way. Why should I be so selfish as to keep all that to myself? Why why not amplify their messages? Mm-hmm. So this book mm-hmm. is a love song to them. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. then the third thing is. Um, I see in the process of, you know, in talking whether it's undergraduate students or MBA students or managers or executives that everyone's wrestling with change, you know, and yeah. change no matter how, how, how many times we've gone through it, it's always uncomfortable, right? And so, and one way to address change is to uh, basically launch, like launch in a right. new direction. And so this book, I hope, will help readers, whether they're launching a home renovation or whether they're launching an entrepreneurship project or whether they're launching into a new career as a um, college graduate or even launching into their next chapter as a retiree, that it will help them understand um, how to do that. And I see so many books out there that's about the tactics of a particular like career change. It's, and here's how you deal with, write your resume, home renovation, here's the nuts and bolts of it. I really wanted, I hope this book would help them address the bigger emotional, cognitive mm. mindset aspects of it. Yeah. Interesting. And so for you, what was um, a lesson that you felt like you really took away from from the book, something that you hadn't quite discovered about yourself as a consequence of, of writing this book? Um, that, let's see. Oh, so those are two different questions, right? There's a cognitive lesson. There's the lesson I mm-hmm. discovered about myself. I discovered that I am better when I'm working together on the team, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, solo endeavors. Um, Not your thing, uh, huh? Yeah, but it's it's this book is the it may have my byline on it, but mm-hmm. it is really a tribe that helped me write this, right? That helped mm-hmm. me be a, you know through bouncing around ideas to landing their insights. This book is is the product of a tribe, that um, mm-hmm. tribe of wonderful mm-hmm. people. Lovely, yeah. So, are you in the midst of a disruption right now? What are you doing right now that's kind of scary to you? Oh my gosh. <laughs> All right, so I am about to to launch my first online course. Um, mm. It's a Duke online course, and we're piloting it exclusively for alums. And the way I, you know, I wanted to construct this is that let's let it be like a traditional course where it's me talking for 10, 20 minutes um, on a video, and then there's course discussions. I wanted it to embrace the spirit of the book, where which is we're learning from each other. And so testing out this new format where I would introduce the principles and then yeah. in just one or two minutes, and then um, it bringing in five different perspectives 
um, mm. all around that principle. And they're, of course, a little bit different, but there's also co- some commonalities. Are they all Duke then, alums? Huh? Are they all Duke alums or no? No, they're not. You know, so there's, okay. um, you know, there's a mix. And then okay. be able to draw draw around, okay, here's the one key point from those, and then add in that personal experience. Because as you and I started off uh, with this podcast with is personal, people have to see you and understand you before they will see you as a person before before they're opening up to what you have to say, right? And right. so, Absolutely. so sharing. Okay, so when does, it, when does it um, launch? Um, so you, don't laugh. May 4th, as in May the 4th, be with your launch. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I love it. Um, okay, so last uh, couple questions is, um, last question on that this course is, what what's one of your guests that you're like, wow, people are going to just be super excited about hearing from this person? There's probably a ton. So just rapid fire, who's the first person who comes okay. to your brain? Okay, all right, Nadja West. Nadja West, she is the um, Chief Surgeon General for the U.S. Army right now. She's a lieutenant, three-star general, lieutenant general, and she is so incredibly humble. And mm-hmm. so she talks about the importance of teamwork and also of vulner- vulnerability. And there's, it just, it's just, it's not only what she says, right? Because at the end of the day, um, leadership principles are leadership principles, but it's also... Yeah who's conveying how that message and it. how they're conveying that message. Yeah. So wow. she's one. And, and actually another person is Edith Cooper, my friend Edith. So Edith is just retired as a global head of uh, human capital at Goldman Sachs. And this was mm-hmm. filmed right before she retired after a uh, several decades long career at Goldman. And, on its, and she sat on its executive committee. And so at that point, when she's talking about risks and she's talking about launching in pursuit of becoming your best self, which is a key message for the book, yeah. that there's as little risk when you're launching in pursuit of becoming your best self. Wow. It, it was a very wow. Super genuine. Cool. Yeah. I can't <laughs> wait for like in this I, It sounds moment. like it's going to be amazing. It sounds like just tons of these. Okay. So we've got to wrap up. Um, last question. Where can people find you? Oh, where can people find me? Um, they can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm an influencer there, and they can find a copy of the launch book on Amazon or barnesandnoble.com or target.com. Wonderful. San Yun Shang, author of the launch book and founding executive director of the Coach K Leadership and Ethics Center. I totally bungled that, but you got the <laughs> idea. If you all enjoyed this episode, please let us know. We look forward to hearing from you at wj at whitneyjohnson.com. Until next time, I'm Whitney Johnson, and you've been listening to Disrupt Yourself Live. Thank you for being a part of Disrupt Yourself Live for this week. Remember, our show is broadcast every Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time, and episodes are always available on demand at the Voice America Business Channel. Please join your host, Whitney Johnson, for another edition next week. 